Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. My other co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, guys. Evan, who is on the, uh, who's on the old show this week? This week, Donovan X. Ramsey returns to the show. He was on uh, a couple of years ago. I really enjoyed talking to Donovan then about his career. And now he's got a book out uh, called When Crack Was King. It's a look back at the crack epidemic, partly told as history, partly as the story through the eyes of four different people who experienced it in different ways. Uh, really remarkable book. He was kind enough to speak to me while he was in Paris. And so you may hear a little bit of lovely Parisian street sounds in the, uh, in the background. Baguettes here. Get your baguettes here. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that is the sound of Paris. I do fo- I do fully work uh, also for anyone uh, looking. Well, I look forward to this episode. Uh, I would like to borrow that book from you. It sounds uh, excellent. I've uh, been very much enjoying uh, re- re- treating the long-form podcast, not my episodes, like a book club. And just sort of uh, following along. Just finished uh, the David Grant book, which uh, was outstanding. Th- thank you for that episode, Max. Uh, you know who else uh, helps us make these episodes? Uh, Fox Media. They are our partners. We thank them for everything they do. Aaron's turning these intros both into a book club and an opportunity to do <laughs> light community theater, which yeah. you gotta gotta love. And now here's Evan with Donovan X. Ramsey. Donovan, welcome back to the Longform Podcast. Hey, Evan. Thank you for having me. We talked for the show just over two years ago now, and now you have this book out. I think at the time you said, like, the book's coming out next year, but it ended up being a year after that. Um, But first, when we last left you, just to pick up the timeline, you were at the LA Times. And I'm wondering first, just like, how did that shake out? You're no longer at the LA Times as I understand it. Right. Um, did you just move to finish the book or, or sort of where did you go from when last we talked on air? 
Yeah. So um, first, the book has been coming out next year for four years. <laughs> and now it's finally coming out in like a few uh, weeks. I don't know. Probably when this interview airs, it might already be out. So yeah, um, that's a huge relief. Um, you know, the L.A. Times was uh, it was a, a cool experience. I got to move to L.A. and I absolutely love Los Angeles. But, uh, you know, it wasn't for me. I really feel like um, this like book project, it really opened up my eyes about like the ways that I wanted to work and like the kind of work that I wanted to do. And, um, you know, and the folks at the LA times, I think, uh, you know, certainly knew that going in that I was experimenting to see if, if a newsroom could be a good place to do the kind of work that I want to do. And, you know, as we got closer and closer to the book's release, you know, as it uh, became time after, I think about two years for me to consider what I wanted to do, Next, you know, I figured let's just go full speed into book writing and uh, more long form journalism about things that really, really excite me. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing now. Well, this book, I mean, I know from talking to you last time, it's a long time coming. It's been percolating for a long time. And I wanted you to maybe just describe for me, do you remember when the germ of this being a book came about for you? Because obviously you've done a lot of reporting about the crack era over the years in different ways, touched that subject. But when did you sort of think, oh, this is a book that I might want to write? Yeah, um, it actually happened after I read The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. You know, that book is so incredible and epic. It's a story of the great migration of Black Americans from the South to uh, Northern cities. And I read it and I thought, well, this is why you write a book, because, you know, she she takes a phenomenon that is so kind of intimately known by, you know, many black Americans, this idea that, you know, you have family that you see in the south or if you're in the south, you have family that lives up north. Everybody's grandmother's like a little bit southern and, you know, it's kind of just understood but it's not something that really we think about or kind of like try to intellectualize the meaning of that and and how it connects us to um, immigration stories, right? Like, you know, all throughout history and throughout the country. So after reading that, I thought, well, if this is why you write a book, is there a topic that is that vast, that accessible um, that I'm interested in? And the crack epidemic came up immediately. And I was, you know, certain at the time that someone had to have already written some sort of like authoritative history of the period and um, was surprised that no one had. So the more that I tried to answer just the small questions that I had, you know, what exactly is crack? And, you know, is it actually different from powder cocaine? And, you know, why did the epidemic happen in the 80s and 90s in that period in particular? Why did it seem to impact communities of color? so profoundly that these were just basic questions that I had that that I set out to answer. And before I knew it, I had a book proposal and then I had a book deal. And how, how long ago was that? That was about five years ago. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe, maybe six years ago that I started thinking about it, but it's been, yeah, five years since, since I first signed my book deal. And you opened the book writing just a little bit about your personal exposure to the sort of like 
community manifestation of the crack epidemic, like growing up in Columbus, Ohio in the early 90s. Can you describe how that sort of shaped your outlook or approach on it? Or was that something that just as you were writing, you thought, well, I'm also going to reflect on my own exposure to this? You know, I did not intend to to write about myself and my experience growing up in a neighborhood that was hard hit by crack. But I realized, you know, after I had, you know, written the proposal and made a plan to write these stories about people around the country who had survived the epidemic, that people that I talked to about it were just very interested in why I cared about the subject. And, um, you know, for me, I went from being, I think, maybe a little bit uh, offended at the curiosity because I thought, well, this is a major thing that happened in this country that hasn't been written about. And as a journalist, you know, um, that is kind of like a dream. If you can take like a subject that people think they know well and actually give it some context and meaning. And, you know, the question at first, it always sort of received it as, that this can only be important to you if you have some personal connection to it. And that seemed to me to be the reason why we don't understand the crack epidemic in the first place. But then I also sort of came to appreciate that there was an opportunity to help people who like me, you know, were not directly connected to the crack epidemic. Thank God that, you know, um, you know, I don't, use drugs, you know, I don't have close family members that were addicted. Um, but I still was touched by the epidemic through extended family, through the neighborhood that I grew up in, through the politics and policies of the era, right? Like through my neighbors that I still had an experience with it that that gave me questions. And that if I could help readers understand that they were as close to it as I was, then that might be a way in for them. And that's, I don't want to oversell it. That's just like, it's literally like the very beginning of the introduction to the book. And then you, you sort of set off on this other journey. And I, I mean, I love a book like this that takes these different stories and sort of pulls me through them, each one kind of illuminating the subject from a different angle. And I always, always want to know what is your process for selecting your subjects? Like, how did you go from probably hundreds of people down to this group of people that you ended up telling their stories? That was very, very difficult. It started with an incredible amount of research just to understand the crack epidemic and the way that it played out and the kinds of people that were sort of swept up in it. And, um, and that was just the nerd in me, you know, having studied psychology at Morehouse and gone through, you know, a ton of social science training to really understand how to make sense of, profiles and sort of how to write essentially what felt like case studies of, of types of people who were affected. So I came across research about users, about dealers. I did a, a ton of research into the politics and policies of the period. And then it then was about trying to find individuals that fit common profiles that sort of mapped onto how, you know, say the, the average user would have experienced the period or, you know, who the average dealer was, not necessarily the kingpin, right? But like, you know, who who most of the guys were that you would see standing on the corner selling crack in the 80s and 90s. Um, so it was a mix of open calls for people to participate. Um, I traveled to the 10 hardest hit cities 
um, and ultimately through walking around, you know, Detroit, Chicago, New York, Newark, Los Angeles, Oakland, New Orleans, um, you know, all of these cities, you know, happened upon people that were willing to either talk to me or to introduce me to somebody that would talk to me. And then also, you know, it was really uh, important to me to get into conversation with uh, people who were in recovery. And that is an incredible network of uh, folks who are used to telling their stories in ways that are honest and hopefully helpful to other people. So, you know, that that network of people in recovery, you know, just led to interviews of people who were, you know, other folks that were in recovery, but also people who were using and people who sold. And, um, you know, all told, you know, I interviewed, you know, maybe like over like 100 people for the book. And I, you know, settled on the four characters that are in the book because um, they were willing to to share their stories in depth and they were willing to spend the time with me. But they also were just great storytellers and great talkers. You know, I had that emotional connection to them that I wanted readers to have. And how, how much time did you spend with them? Like these stories really get to not just what they were doing and the the sort of factual details of their lives, but like how they were feeling at the time. It goes deep into what they were experiencing. And how much time did you have to spend to kind of get that? It was hours and hours of of tape, you know, and I and I and I tape all of my interviews. I'm um a little uh anal in that way that every interview that I've ever done since graduate school is on tape somewhere. It's <laughs> a lot of hard drive space. It is. No, it definitely is. And, um, you know, and, and you make a good point that, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize was how they felt about the events that they experienced, the scenarios that they found themselves in, but also about the decisions that they made, how they felt about them in real time, and also like how they feel about them now. You know, which I think for a book of narrative nonfiction, um, I mean, hopefully it's something that like, you know, narrative nonfiction does. I found when I was sort of preparing by reading other books that a lot of narrative nonfiction, you know, goes into the details and the scene setting and building kind of the like the like dramatic scope of a scene. But I really wanted to build out that internal world through all of that interviewing because I thought that that internal world um, wasn't as well understood as the physical world. For some of them, it seems very challenging. I mean, I'm thinking particular of Lenny, who was addicted, and you go back through her life. And I think you say, it's, I don't know if it's in the book or in the in the main text of the book or in the acknowledgments, something about like thanking her for letting you sit down with her and quote piece together yeah. her story. And that made me wonder about the challenges of memory, which are exist for any person, but in this particular circumstance, how did you help her navigate through probably things she couldn't remember or contradictions in what she might remember at different times? Yeah, it was a, a, a huge challenge. And, you know, I, you know, really try to emphasize in the book that I am attempting to complement the official history and the official story with the memories of these four individuals and getting as close to the truth of their lives, in particular events that, you know, they were the only people sometimes there for, through interviewing friends and family, people that know them, but also asking sometimes the same questions over and over again, 
right? So, you know, if I'm interviewing Lenny over the course of a few years, going back to stories to to get her her take on it, you know, again, and then actually posing to her how she feels about discrepancies that 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 arise and trying to make that really a part of as a person who was addicted to crack for decades, a part of the story, right? That like there are entire spans of years that she just does not remember. And as someone who experienced a lot of trauma, there are also things that she's just completely blocked out. And I think that you try to represent that as honestly as possible, but also allow that to be a part of the story and a part of the characterization, that there are some things that can be inconsistent or um, missing. And that that in, in understanding that type of expression and recall is a part of understanding Lenny. So above the layer of these four people, you're telling the story of the crack epidemic. What what happened? Where did it come from? And you don't start in the 80s. You start basically in the 60s. I mean, there's also a history of drugs that goes back farther than that. But, you know, you start in the 60s and explain for people why it starts in the 60s for you. It was so important for me to start in the 60s because as a Black millennial. See, I can't call myself a young black man anymore. I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm aging out of it. Geriatric millennial. <laughs> you know, it's uh, you know, when I'm when I'm in the train station and they're like a bunch of like young guys and they call me like, you know, sir or like an old head because I have gray hair now and sometimes wear glasses. It's like, oh what 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 happened? Um <laughs> but um you know I was taught in the history that was impressed, you know, upon me was this, the Black American story begins with slavery, and it goes right up to Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement, and anything that happened after is kind of like a blur. And I realized that a part of putting the crack epidemic into context is, is sort of understanding its relationship as a post-civil rights event, a post-Black power event. And what does it mean that Black America went from this um, period of high respectability and morality and, you know, all the things that the civil rights movement comes to represent to us to, you know, within a few decades, this period of real disaffection and, and deprivation. And just as someone that grew up in a Black community and comes from a Black community, I wanted to know what my community was like before crack. You know, I'm born in 1987. Crack predates me. So, you know, a part of understanding my community, I had to kind of get that piece of history. And what I found was, again, this sort of deep disaffection in the post-civil rights period, where it's actually not very different than what, you know, white folks in rural America are going through right now. You know, a level of hopelessness, dealing with housing insecurity or poor housing, dealing with few job prospects, not understanding where your political representation is, and just not seeing a way out. And then, you know, substances are these great things that can make you feel a way. And, you know, cocaine is a substance that um, is a stimulant and it induces euphoria. So there really was no better substance than cocaine for Black communities at that period. And the um, technology of crack 
just happened to come around during that era, making it cheap and accessible. So getting to that history was so helpful for me when it comes to setting the stage for, you know, how this epidemic didn't just come out of anywhere, but there was all this context for it. You call it an ideal drug for a grief-stricken people, which I thought was a beautiful line, but also kind of devastating. Yeah, thank you. You know, I mean, um, you know, even just somebody, you know, being being someone that works in media, well, I should say first that I am uh, deathly afraid of drugs, being a, you know, child of the crack epidemic and having gone through D.A.R.E. And I was scandalized when I got to college and grad school and saw people doing lines of cocaine because my fear was, oh my God, like crack, right? Like for me, it was the same thing, but I should note that for anybody that may have a hard time understanding why people would choose to do crack or how that came to be such a big thing in, let's say black communities at that time, just think of anybody that you've ever known that was addicted to Coke or that was an alcoholic or, you know, people um, are looking for escape and a way out. And for whatever reason, it took me writing this book to make that connection for a community that I knew well, despite the fact that I know that community so well that, you know, I think maybe even I still had a little bit of bias that somehow crack was this separate thing or, you know, people at that time must have been different somehow than everybody else and the rest of us. And in reality, you know, addiction is addiction, right? So then the question became to move it from an individual level to a community level. If I can understand why individuals do drugs and abuse drugs and become addicts, then how can that be expanded to understand how that can happen to a whole community or a a generation of folks within a community? Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. 
Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. There are so many uh, myths that you unravel in this book about the crack era. Panic around crack babies, the fact that crack is no more addictive than powder cocaine. Were there myths that you didn't know were myths when you got into it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there were like a few stories, mostly for me, they were these like cautionary tales that 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 really made me terrified of all drugs, which which can be helpful in a sense. But I think taken too far can put such distance between you and people who are addicts or it can make you, you know, a drug warrior and to believe that people who who do drugs or experiment with drugs are, you know, somehow like depraved. And I think that 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 happened for many people of 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 our generation and those cautionary tales were things like the death of Lynn Bias, who was NBA second draft pick to the Celtics out of uh, Washington, D.C. And um, the story had been that Lynn Bias smoked crack, his heart stopped and he died the night that he was drafted. And um, Lynn Bias did die of a cocaine overdose night that he was drafted. His heart did stop, but that there was no evidence that it was crack. Um, On the contrary, the folks that did his autopsy in a later investigation showed that the amount of cocaine in his body suggested that he had been using cocaine for quite some time and that there were traces of powder cocaine found, um, you know, around his dorm room. But Lynn Bias's death led almost immediately to legislation that gave us the 100 to 1 disparity in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine, that folks on both sides of the aisle right, who were in D.C. saw this as a moment to be tough on crime, to make a statement about drugs. And they gave us maybe one of the most blatantly, I would say, discriminatory policies of the crack era, which is that, you know, you would get 100 times uh, the sentence for the same amount of crack cocaine that you would get for powder cocaine. And it's, you know, ironic that he actually didn't die from crack cocaine. Similarly, you know, there was a a, a story that Richard Pryor had blown himself up smoking Freebase, which was sort of the the first version of crack. So it was a smokable form of cocaine like like crack is, but it was made uh, with volatile chemicals like ether um, instead of baking soda and water, which is a much simpler way, which is what, what crack became. And that had always been the story was that Richard Pryor was smoking free base, somehow blowing himself up. And it came out later that, you know, according to Richard Pryor's widow, that it wasn't an accident that he had actually attempted suicide 
by dousing himself in a very high proof rum and setting himself on fire. And, you know, in thinking about why these distinctions matter, one, because, you know, the myths helped support draconian policies as it related to criminalization around crack. They also supported, I think, the vilification of crack addicts and um, and just crack users broadly, but also that there are these missed opportunities to talk about the danger of all substances and these missed opportunities to talk about the conditions that lead people to addiction. You know, Richard Pryor was experiencing suicidal ideation. He was dealing with an alcohol addiction. Many addicts have comorbid addictions that many people that you would consider to be, you know, quote unquote crackheads or or alcoholics who are evening out their high, right? That like, you know, alcohol is a depressant. They're evening it out with the stimulant in cocaine. Um, are there are people who, who who become cocaine users because they're opioid users and opioids are also a depressant. Um, so to keep from falling asleep while you're high, people will do right a little bit of crack. There was a missed opportunity to talk about the the complexities around drug use and addiction that just got flattened out by these myths that just said, be afraid of crack. Yeah. When uh, I feel like when when Biden shows up, I had this like real sinking feeling you write something like they're they're sort of like uh republicans and democrats start fighting over you know who's going to be the winning drug warriors and then it really goes bad from there in terms of legislation oh yeah it's just this like this like snowball of like a race to the bottom in terms of criminalizing um people around crack and the crime of the era and um you know, as someone, again, who grew up in a high crime neighborhood, a neighborhood hard hit by crack, I understand the fear of the period, right? Like I I remember, you know, my mom, you know, being a young single mom, me and my two sisters, you know, we're trying to live in this household together and she's, you know, struggling to make it work. And, you know, you hear gunshots and you have to get down on the floor. And that was just a part of life that you understood that that was what you did, you know, at five or six and that you wait until it's quiet and you can get back up. Or my, my very first bike was stolen by a crack addict. You know, I lost the, the my, my like tire, lost, lost air. And I was terrified to go back home and say that I had messed up my very first bike. So this guy's like, Hey, you know, I, I had seen around the neighborhood. He was one of those adults that other adults didn't really talk to, but he, he said that he could fix my bike. So, you know, I gave him my bike <laughs> and, you know, uh, five minutes go by, half an hour go by, an hour goes by. He doesn't come back with the bike. And I'm like, oh, I think this guy stole my bike. I'm what, like seven? You don't have to go back home. And then I learn some people will take things from children because they have addiction and they want to feed their addiction. Right. That was a part of um, of the landscape that I grew up in. So I say all that to say that I. I understand intimately the need for a response to the crack epidemic, but I, but the solutions that communities like mine got didn't help us. In fact, they only then further criminalized children like me, that they were political solutions, often say 
I say in the book that they were white facing solutions to black facing problems, because I do think that politicians were, you know, stoking racial hostility and resentment at the time for for political points. And so black folks brought Democrats and Republicans our problems in our communities. We said we need something done. And the solutions that we got were, well, let's lock up, you know, a generation of young black men for decades and decades for for drug possession. And let's cast a dragnet over your communities. And so when I think back to the crack epidemic and when I think about the sort of legacy of the politics and the policies of that period, I think about all that those of us that grew up in those communities experienced because of the drug, the sort of devastation of, of seeing addiction up close and personal, of seeing the crime around addiction up close and personal, but then also the experience of being criminalized. I had that experience with the gunshots as a kid, but I've also had you know police officers pull guns on me because I was a young black man living in that neighborhood. And so, you know, when people have the conversations about how those policies were necessary, that's where my mind and my heart goes, is um, how I only felt more victimized. When you write the history, rewrite the history the way that you have, it both unwinds all these myths around it, but also it can make it feel a little bit inevitable, like, the forces were all aligned for this to take place and even for the policies to be the exact wrong policies. But can you engage with like a counterfactual in this situation where the community took its problems to political leadership and they said, oh, here's a thoughtful solution to this problem. I mean, you, you sort of do that with one of the characters, actually, one of the subjects of the book in, you know, uh, the mayor of Baltimore. Yeah, with Kurt Schmoke. Um, Kurt Schmoke was the first elected black mayor of Baltimore. Um, He was really ahead of his time, you know, because he was sort of a a wonk and and still is a wonk. And he was married to a physician and still is married to a physician. He thought that the answer to drug abuse, to the crime around drugs was decriminalization. And uh, what he later called medicalization as a way of kind of getting past the politics of it to say essentially that we should have a public health response to drugs and that Baltimore, with all of its hospitals, with Johns Hopkins, can pilot that. And um, I should say that he was in a unique position, I think, being married to a physician and understanding, you know, the kind of like health implications of addiction. And again, being in Baltimore, a city that has those kind of like hospital resources. And he also, Baltimore as a port city is a city that gets a lot of drugs. And it is the first stop for substances like heroin. And heroin comes as a substance that is um, usually consumed intravenously. Um, Lots of health challenges, HIV, AIDS in the 80s. And so Kurt Schmoke's main objective was harm reduction. He wanted people to stop dying of heroin overdoses, and he wanted people um, to stop contracting HIV AIDS. So he was willing, maybe more than other mayors, to try something like medicalization. And um, as like hopeful as that is, that like a mayor can have that response, 
people were not having it, <laughs> you know, that he was um, still a Democrat, a black Democrat in a major black city, uh, a major progressive city in a conservative state dealing with mostly white Republicans at the state level. And there was just this tension, right, about him being soft on crime, about it being a bad idea. And um, it's a shame that he got as much pushback as he did. I mean, you know, he kind of put out this idea during a congressional hearing within his first term as mayor, I think within a, a, a year of being elected in around 1988. And he was laughed out of the hearing by basically everyone there, including Marion Barry, who was mayor of D.C. and who later on was busted smoking crack, that people said that this conversation is just a non-starter. And decades later, we've now come around to the idea of maybe not full decriminalization, but a public health response to drug epidemics. There's one more sort of uh, thing at the policy level that I want to touch on. But I kept when I was reading the book, I kept thinking, is he going to get to Gary Webb? Is he going to get to Gary Webb? <laughs> and uh, then you do get to Gary Webb. And I found it to be a very illuminating approach to that subject. And so maybe just people might not know. I wonder if you can quickly explain what people believed about where the crack epidemic started and then how you approached the different perspectives. Because for people who were around then, this Gary Webb story that appeared in San Jose Mercury News, this series, it's like a very significant thing. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a community where people said the government planted crack here to disrupt us, to disrupt our movements, um, and that all of this was intentional. And that feeling came out of one, I would say, the kind of inexplicable sudden rise of this substance and the, I would say, very convenient response that it gave politicians that were already, you know, putting forward policies that I would say were anti-Black. So, you know, it seemed like, you know, Black folks are really struggling. There's this tension between our major cities, which are, you know, increasingly home for Black and Latino folks as white folks have moved to the suburbs. And you see just this tension between those forces. And then all of a sudden you have this substance that nobody knows where it comes from. And it's in Black communities and it's a perfect pretext, right, for criminalization and a bunch of other policies that say these folks need to just be warehoused and locked up. So I am really uh, empathetic right? Like to that, that, that feeling about it. Um, and I think that Gary Webb was as well. So when he was introduced to a man named Freeway Ricky Ross, a, a former dealer out of Los Angeles, who had a really compelling story about his ties to uh, Nicaraguan drug dealers, drug, drug traffickers who were tied to the federal government, Gary Webb took that up and he wrote a series for the San Jose Mercury News called Dark Alliance, where he made the argument that the CIA was behind the crack epidemic by supporting Nicaraguan drug traffickers distributing drugs in Los Angeles. And I want to be careful in saying this, right, because getting this wrong is what ruined arguably Gary Webb's career in life that he published that series 
to a lot of controversy and every major paper curiously, right, like denounced him for the reporting and put forward um, sort of counter stories that said, oh, like Gary Webb doesn't know what he's talking about. But there is a ton of evidence that has since come out through um, a commission led by John Kerry, by another one led by Maxine Waters, by um, investigations and reports from the FBI, the CIA, all the big three-letter organizations that show that there were indeed Nicaraguan Contras, so uh, rebels who were opposing the official government in that country with the support of the United States, who, you know, we cannot fund directly because Congress would not fund a war against, you know, a democratically elected government. So what the U.S. government seemingly allowed those Contras to do was to fund their activities through drug trafficking. And I say seemingly because there are dozens of instances where they were caught doing it. And it was known to the CIA, you know, to folks, you know, in the White House that this was happening and that there were literally tons of cocaine that were being pushed into the U.S. by these groups that we were working with. And that then it was this glut of cocaine in cities like Los Angeles that led to the, I would say, research and development of crack, right? Anytime you have a lot of a substance, let's say, you know, today, weed, you know, which has become uh, legal in many places, the, the, the enthusiasts start experimenting. They say, well, how else can we consume this? Oh, well, we'll, we'll make edibles and we'll make oils and vapes. Um, people start experimenting. And that was how crack came about, right? It was um, not necessarily this, this coordinated conspiracy. At least I don't have any evidence of that. As described by Gary Webb, what you see instead is the government just not giving a damn about the consequences of letting that kind of activity happen, letting drug traffickers bring tons of cocaine into the U.S., And, you know, one of the things that I write in the book is that the truth is actually probably sadder than the conspiracy, which is that Black and Latino communities are positioned as such that we are hit first and worst. So there is a glut of cocaine coming into the U.S. There is at the same time, you know, enthusiasts creating all of these new ways to consume it, including First, free base, which is volatile and dangerous. And then the crack process, which is much more stable and really anybody can do it. And that that was going to inevitably hurt us the worst because of how we're positioned, which is experience a lot of devastation, would be most apt for addiction during the period. And that was how it really skyrocketed. And it, you know, went off from there. It went from you know, sort of small communities of drug users in cities like Los Angeles and the Bay Area. And then it followed the normal routes, right, that people take. So LA to New York, right, where there's like entertainment and parties and excitement. And then from New York up the East Coast to cities like DC and Baltimore, um, you know, or down South to to Florida. Those were the normal routes for 
for crack to travel. And it slowly started to infiltrate the middle of the country, including, you know, my hometown, Columbus, Ohio. So, you know, that's a long winded way of saying Gary Webb wasn't exactly wrong, but I do think that he overstated his case. So there's a point in the book comes about a hundred pages in where you're actually writing about the history of cocaine and which was all fascinating to me and how cocaine was given to black laborers as a stimulant. And then there's a moment right in there where you, for a few sentences, a few paragraphs, you say us, Mm -hmm. you say they, they believed this is what it would do to us. And that us, it felt significant to me, partly because we've spoken before and you I think when we talked last time, you said something about, I think readers need to hear the authentic voices of black journalists Mm -hmm. in this work. And there was something about that us that made me wonder to you, how, how is this a different book if that's not an us? Yeah. You know, it was um, that there are a few us's and we's throughout the book. And I realized as I was writing it, that in talking about Black people during a a certain period, I thought of the subjects as them. In talking about Black people broadly in the way that I think um, most people think about like capital B Black people, it feels like us. And in talking about the sort of implications of policies that affect Black life, it, it does feel like us. And you know, writing about Black people in third person, it just felt weird and wrong. And I realized as I was considering, well, is this something that I can do in the book? The first thought that came to me is it's the white gaze. It's the little white man that sits on my shoulder, you know, from just growing up being Black in America that says, well, this will be alienating to white people because they'll read it and they'll think us. But the uh, the other person sitting on my shoulder, right, is, you know, little Donovan growing up in Columbus, Ohio, who needs to read a book by someone who is an authority and is an expert in the subject matter that says us, that says, you know, I am not writing about you from the outside in, but from the inside out. And I thought that there was so much potential to bring in, in a much closer way, people who survived the epidemic and just Black people broadly. And I don't think that the book loses any of its objectivity by me admitting to readers that I am also Black. <laughs> you know, sort of giving giving language to that, that like I don't want readers to you know, kind of suspend their acknowledgement that I'm a Black person writing about something that affected Black people, that instead of thinking that that takes away from my objectivity, I think maybe it it just adds to my expertise. But the flip side of that is it also, writing the book affected you deeply, which I know because you put that into the book at the end and even put you in the hospital at times. And I'm wondering if you can try and articulate for people why that was and like how that lifted, if it has lifted. Yeah. Well, when I started writing the book, I thought it'll just be like writing a bunch of articles. 
and I'll get it done in a year. <laughs> you know, it'll be, and it actually is written, you know, almost like a series of articles that the chapters are short and they kind of ping pong back and forth between, you know, the four characters and what I consider kind of this meta history. Um, that's the way that it's structured. I would say that the that the history is the spine and then you have all of these like nerves that shoot off from it. Um, and it was like that for a bit, but you know, I am also um, an absolute neurotic <laughs> that there's no way of getting around it, right? And like most writers will not admit to this, right? But the reason why we can focus, you know, years of our lives on one topic and focus our careers on trying to explain things to other people is because, you know, there's something a little off about us. So for me, you know, all of the the weight of wanting to get it right, of understanding the um, the potential pitfalls of getting it wrong and so many ways to get it wrong, right? Either not honoring the perspectives of the people who survived it, not living up to some standard for a history. You know, we saw what happened with the 1619 Project. You know, I'm just lowly Donovan. I'm not Nicole Hannah-Jones with the support of the, the, the New York Times. So I don't know if I could you know, put up with that, um, understanding that there would be people that would be critical of me being critical of Democrats or Republicans that I, I think allowed a lot of that weight to get to me. And it was just weight that I was, you know, mostly putting on myself. Nobody had read the book. And then also, you know, I mean, I can't overstate how difficult it was for me to do all of those interviews with all of those people you know, beyond Lenny, Sean, Elgin, and Kurt, you know, I interviewed hundreds of people about some of the most difficult stuff that ever happened to them. And I truly felt for them. And, you know, also was reminded of stories, right? Like having my first bike stolen and the heartbreak of that. And um, I opened the book by writing about a neighbor of mine, Michelle, who was uh, an addict, who I always had these sort of like questions about. It just... You know, those stories wrecked me in a sense. And when I got to the end of the process of having written it, which, you know, I always sort of prided myself, you know, I, I've only ever wanted to write about Black people. And that includes, you know, the elements of our lives that are difficult. I always prided myself on being able to metabolize that information and not really be harmed by it. And this book really taught me that writing and processing is not just something that you do in your head, that the information does go through you as you're trying to make sense of it and as you're considering it. And it's not happening to you, right? Like it's not like a direct form of like PTSD that you have, but you do experience some trauma when you open up your imagination in that way. So at the end of it, you know, um, I lost about 40 pounds. Luckily, I'm a pretty big guy. So, you know, I was able to, to sort of take that. And I, But, you know, I was so anxious and I had run my blood pressure up so high. Um, I would break out in hives whenever I sat down to write. I had, had heart palpitations, had to wear a heart monitor to make sure that I was okay. And... Um, it was only after I finished the book and I was in therapy, I was doing yoga, 
I was, you know, seeing my family all the time that I was able to say, you know, you can release this, that these stories are important and that you did your best, you know, and that the book will get to people who need it and that those people will enjoy it for reasons that you have no control over and that really you have no control over any of it, right? Like, like you know, once you write a thing and put it out into the world, it is what it is, you know? And the thing that really helped me was being able to have those four sources, um, that like those, those central characters in the book, for them to read it and to say, I'm so happy that I did this, mm. that this process of telling my story and seeing my story like reflected back to me has been meaningful and helpful to me in my healing that allowed me to heal from the process. And I hope that the book allows other people to heal, not just from, you know, however they may have experienced or been close to the crack epidemic, but to all of the things that I talked about, right? Which is judgment and expectation and um, the ways that we're hard on ourselves that I want us all to be free of that. And I think that the crack epidemic is kind of just one very extreme window into the internal and external pressures that we can put on individuals and communities. So I dedicate the book to the misunderstood, the marginalized, and the maligned, because I think that people who survived the crack era have experienced all of that. But I think that it's something that we all experience at some point or in one way or another. Well, I'm excited for you to see this book out into the world. And thank you for taking all this time to come back on the show. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you, too. Thank you for reading the book. Um, and now I'm off to the Louvre. It was you and then the Louvre. Oh, man, I'm keeping you from the Louvre. <laughs> well, have fun. Take care. All right. Peace. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to Donovan Ramsey for coming on. Always love talking to Donovan. His new book is called When Crack Was King. It is available everywhere right now. This show was edited by Seth Kelly. Susan Peterson did our show notes. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.